Welcome to Episode 6 of Season 2 of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In Episode 5, I discussed alimony and cohabitation with my colleague, Melissa Essick. In this episode, I will be discussing the divorce process with my law partner, Meredith Cross. Meredith is a board-certified family law specialist and has practiced exclusively in the area of family law for over 10 years. Meredith is a certified parenting coordinator and serves as the chair of the Wake County Bar Association's Public Service Committee. Welcome, Meredith. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Various claims arise from the dissolution of a marriage. One of those claims is equitable distribution. Post-separation support and alimony are two additional claims that arise, and child custody and child support may also be an issue. Generally speaking, there are two ways to resolve these claims. The first way they can be resolved is through a separation agreement and property settlement. Meredith, can you tell us what is a separation agreement? A separation agreement is a contract between two married individuals which divides the assets and debts of the parties. In addition to dividing assets and debts, the parties can also address the issues that Jamie mentioned before, such as alimony, child support, custody, any of that can also be done in there. Yeah, and another thing that I've seen folks include in separation agreements um, are estate waivers. So you also acquire some inheritance rights by virtue of the fact that you're married. And in your separation agreement, you can go ahead and put some waivers in there. So in the event somebody passes away before the divorce is final, you're still covered. Yes, it's important to know that life insurance... um, Any life insurance that you have out there, the beneficiary is going to pass outside of this. So if you want the beneficiary to be someone other than your designated spouse, you would need to do that outside of this contract. Um, Speaking of life insurance, you also have the ability to have the other side continue life insurance with you as the beneficiary so long as, for example, if you agree for so long as there is a financial obligation such as child support or alimony. That is something that is not available if you go to the court. The court cannot order that, but the two of you can agree in a contract, this separation agreement, to maintain that life insurance in place so that if something does happen to the supporting spouse, that the dependent spouse and the children, if there are children in this case, they're going to be taken care of. That's a really good point, Meredith. And I also think it's important for our listeners to know that in order for the parties to reach a separation agreement, um, provided they are able to reach a deal, the agreement has to be signed by both of them and it has to be notarized. So if clients think that they might be able to reach a separation agreement, what is the first step in negotiating that agreement? The first step would be the exchange of financial information. Um, Both parties need a picture, an overall picture of the marital estate in order to know what is there and what is to be divided. And it's important to note that what may be equitable may not always be equal. Um, For instance, you have some people that may have a large separate estate that the other spouse is not entitled to any portion of, but it would make sense because they have such a large separate estate that the other side has a little bit more of the marital estate. Um, we're talking about maybe 55, 45, not 80, 20, 90, 10. 
when we're talking about an unequal but equitable distribution. And so when we are starting out these negotiations to try to reach an agreement, I think one of the most important first steps is exchanging financial information. Would you agree? Yes, I I think it's very important. And generally, when we're talking about financial information, we're talking about bank statements, credit card statements, retirement statements, life insurance that's out there. Um, If there's any bonds, anything like that, um, both sides need copies of those and pictures. We need an overall picture of the estate. And when we're talking about exchanging the information, a lot of times we're looking back six months, a year, maybe longer than a year, two years for that information. Right, because when we're trying to figure out what marital property a couple may have, we need to be able to value that property as of the party's date of separation. And we can't really do that if we don't have the statements for the bank accounts or the retirement accounts that are going to show us what those numbers are. Um, I think we also need some documentation of the party's income and expenses if we are trying to figure out what alimony should be or perhaps what child support should be. Yes, typically child support, if you if the combined incomes of the parties is under 360000 a year, 360 or below, then it's going to be based on the North Carolina Child Support Guidelines. If the combined incomes of the parties are above 360, then it really is important to get an overall picture of what the expenses of the kids are. And to do that, you need that financial information. Absolutely. So once we have exchanged these financial documents with the other side and we've had a chance to review them, what is the next step in the process? Once everybody's had a chance to review it, the next step is to determine what the marital estate is and what the division of that estate is going to be. Generally, we do that by putting all the assets and debts into a spreadsheet, and we come up with a net value of the marital estate, and the presumption is that it'll be a 50-50 split between the parties. That's right. Our spreadsheet usually has a husband column and a wife column, and we list all the assets and debts down the, the side of the spreadsheet. And we just go down the spreadsheet and put the value of the thing in the column of the person who's going to get it. And at the end of the day, the the two columns should equal in most cases. And I will say, in the majority of cases, we don't list out every knife and fork within the the household. Generally, those are divided between the parties. And it's going to be more expensive to pay attorneys to divide them than it would be to go get new ones if you can't agree. That's a very good point. Um, Speaking of expenses... How involved is the lawyer in the negotiation process? Honestly, it depends on the client and how comfortable they are in the process with the opposing party. Uh, I do have clients come in that are very comfortable and are on amicable terms with the other side and are able to sit down and basically do what Jamie and I talked about. They go through the marital estate. They go through the process of valuing all the property and saying, you get this, I get that and coming up with a distribution. Now, there are other cases where a party, just for whatever reason, is unable to speak for themselves. And so the attorney is needed to come in and advocate for that client and negotiate either with the other party or the other party's attorney to come up with a distribution of property. You know, that's very true. We do have cases where clients have a fairly amicable relationship with the other side and they are able to do a lot of that negotiating themselves. 
But then we also get cases sometimes where domestic violence may be an issue and an order may actually be in place that prohibits one party from communicating with the other. And in those cases, having the lawyer do the negotiation is really the only way that an agreement can be reached. Um, I also think that there are other cases where the parties simply just don't get along and they are not going to have productive conversations about who should get what and who should pay how much support to who and, you know, where the children should live. Really, the lawyer is going to need to come in and, and try to facilitate some of those discussions, either with the, the pro se party or with the other party's lawyer. We even have those cases where, you know, despite the lawyer's best efforts to try to negotiate a deal between the parties, it's just not happening. And one way that we will try to expedite the process is to schedule a mediation, um, which gets everybody in the same building at the same time, focusing on the case. And in those cases, the mediator can be very helpful at facilitating settlement discussions. Yeah, the cases that we have, we always choose a mediator that is actually a board-certified family law specialist. Uh, When you are choosing a mediator, that is important because you want somebody that knows family law, knows the ins and outs of it, and is able to to give each, each side a little bit of a push towards settlement. And I do find it helpful that you all are in the same place at the same time because if there are issues still outstanding that you have questions about, for example, if there was an account and there was a balance that was withdrawn at some point in time. And you have questions about who who withdrew it, where did it go, how was it done? Well, you can ask those questions to the mediator, and then the mediator can go into the other room and sit down and go through the documents with the other side and figure out where did those funds go, where were they deposited, how were they spent, and then bring that information back to the other side to answer those questions. And that helps facilitate an agreement on the case overall. Yeah, that's a really good point. A lot of times having that neutral third party there um, to act as the intermediary and to ask some of those questions that you really need answers to, it's just a more effective way of getting the other side to answer the questions and for you to be able to get the financial information you need to make an educated decision about settling your case. Um, We touched on this a little bit earlier, but assuming the parties are able to reach an agreement, how do they memorialize it? In order to reach, once you've reached an agreement, in order to memorialize it, you need to put it in a separation agreement, generally called separation agreements and property settlements. Um, In that document, you detail specifically what assets and what debts are going to go to each party. Um, Generally, when I do it, I will say the specific asset and identify it in there um, as noted by the last four digits of the account number. I'll also put in what the date of separation balance was of that account and detail who gets that account. Is it an account that's going to stay open until the funds are distributed between the parties and then closed? Or is one party going to remove the name of the other party from the account and then that party whose name remains on the account gets to keep the remaining account? There's just different ways to do it. Also in there, you can include your terms for custody and child support, alimony. Um, A lot of times people will bargain for things that they can't otherwise get in court. For example, in a separation agreement, parties can bargain for college, college education to be paid for. I've had clients bargain that, you know, upon the time the kids enter 
enters college that dad will pay 50% and mom will pay 50% of the college education. And generally that's limited to room and board and books or whatever else the parties can agree to. And a lot of times the tu- the tuition is limited to the amount it would cost at a state school at that period in time, the child enters college. We would look at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, for example, as a baseline. Um, parties have also, if the kids are younger, the parties have also chosen to continue contributing to a 529 account. Um, I've had many clients say, okay, from the execution of this agreement, we're each going to put $100 into this 529 account until such time as our child goes to college. Um, and that is something that a court could not otherwise order you to do, but as two parents, you can agree to do that in a separation agreement. Yeah, I've seen folks include things such as payment of a teenage child's car insurance, car payment, car maintenance. I've even seen um, people add provisions for the payment of wedding expenses for their children in the future. I think the beauty of a separation agreement is that it gives you a level of flexibility to tailor the terms to the needs of your particular family, and that can be really helpful. So let's say that we do have a separation agreement. It has been signed by both parties. It's been notarized. Does it get filed with the court or the register of deeds? The simple answer is not usually. Um, The long answer is it can happen. Um, Typically, we do not see people filing their separation agreements with the court or the register of deeds if they can help it. If they're going to file with the Register of Deeds because the bank that they're trying to refinance with is requiring it, usually we will have clients do what's called a memorandum, and they will provide that as a shortened version of the separation agreement, basically saying the parties are separated, they've been separated, and they're allowed to contract as if they're no longer married. And it meets the requirements of the bank, but it doesn't put all that personal information into just... Public, the public domain where anybody can read it. Because as we talked about before with a separation agreement, there's a lot of personal information included in there. Kids' names are in there, birth dates, um, account numbers, finances, and most people don't want that included in there. With orders, you don't typically see a, a separation agreement entered into the court, filed with the court, because it would make it an order, and that changes the nature of the separation agreement. A separation agreement, as I said before, is a contract between two married individuals. If you bring the court into it and you, for instance, incorporate the separation agreement into a divorce judgment, it makes it an order of the court and thereby enforceable by the court. Um, And it can also change terms of the agreement. For example, if if two parties agreed for lifetime alimony and non-modifiable alimony, if they have that in there and then it's incorporated into a divorce judgment, it becomes an order of the court and becomes modifiable, which is not what the two parties originally bargained for. So that's important to note that the majority of the time, people don't file it with the court because it can change the terms the parties actually bargained for when they signed the agreement. And Meredith, when you say incorporate the separation agreement into the divorce judgment, you actually mean that the separation agreement could become part of that court order that is the divorce judgment. Is that right? Correct. Correct. It becomes a part of it and it's enforceable by the court. There may be reasons you want to do that. If alimony is not an issue, 
you may, there may be provisions in the agreement where you're afraid the other side is not going to do what they're supposed to do. And so you might actually want it to be filed with the court so it becomes a court order. And if, for instance, they're not paying off the debt they're supposed to pay or they're not doing specific or not abiding by certain terms that they've agreed to in the separation agreement, you can come in and ask the court to enforce those terms. Yeah, I've had cases where in the separation agreement itself, we will have a provision, for example, that the child custody and child support terms of the agreement will be made into what's called a consent order. Um, that's a court order where both parties have agreed to the terms, they sign off on it, and then it is submitted to the judge for signature. And clients will do that, like Meredith said, for enforceability reasons. They are worried that maybe the other parent will take the children out of state and not return them, or they are worried that the other parent is not going to pay the child support that they have agreed to pay. And so we will actually file what we call a friendly lawsuit um, so that we can have those provisions um, put into a consent order. Jamie, we've talked a couple different times about separation agreements and having custody and child support in them and court orders and having custody and child support in those. And I want people to understand that if you do custody and child support within a separation agreement, it is not a set in stone term. Um, Custody and child support are always modifiable. Um, If later on down the road, after the separation agreement is signed, one party decides that the amount of child support is insufficient or If somebody moves and the custodial schedule that's in the separation agreement no longer works, a party can always go to the court and ask that the court establish child support or establish a custodial schedule. And for the custody part of it, it's as if the separation agreement terms had never happened. The court's going to look at custody and make a determination, an initial determination. For child support, there is a little caveat here in that Whatever the two of you agree to in the separation agreement, there's a presumption that that is what child support should be. It's a rebuttable presumption. The person asking for child support to be established, they can say, well, you know, at the time we agreed to child support, I didn't have the kids at all. Mom had them or dad had them 100% of the time. And now we have a 50-50 schedule. And so the child support I need to be paying should be less or A party could say, the amount of income I have is decreased. I've lost my job. I can't pay what I agreed to originally. And so I just want people to know that custody and child support are always modifiable. And that is something that a lot of people just don't realize when they do a separation agreement. So if the parties are unable to reach a separation agreement, what is the other way that they can resolve the issues arising from their separation? If parties aren't able to reach an agreement, they can't do a separation agreement. So the only option left is to go to the court and ask the court to make a determination on all the remaining issues. What we talked about, equitable distribution, custody, child support, post-separation support, alimony, and you can also do um, attorney's fees is another thing that you can ask the court for. So let's say that your spouse has made the decision to file a lawsuit and the sheriff shows up at your house and hands you a bunch of legal documents. You've, you've then been served with the lawsuit. What should you do? First and foremost, you need to review the paperwork. You need to read it and determine what specifically the plaintiff is asking for. 
And in this case, the plaintiff is the individual that filed the claims with the court. The defendant is the person that is served with the complaint. And generally, the plaintiff is going to be your spouse, your soon-to-be ex-spouse. Once you review the paperwork, you're going to want to look and make sure that any of the paperwork in there that has notice of hearing on it, you're going to want to pay special attention to that to make sure that there aren't any court dates already pending. Um, the notice of hearing will give you the date, time, location that you need to be present. Once you're, five, or once you're served with a complaint, you typically have 30 days to respond. Um, there are instances where that time frame is shortened. For example, in domestic violence cases, the court could have already had an ex parte hearing, which means you, as a defendant, weren't given notice of that hearing. It was just between the court and the plaintiff. And the court listened to the plaintiff, determined what was outstanding, and determined that a domestic violence protective order, at least in the short term, needed to be in place before a hearing could be held. And in those cases where the court has issued a domestic violence protective order, the hearing, the return hearing, needs to be held within 10 days. So in that 10 days, from the time the order is entered and the return hearing, you will be served at some point. There are cases where you're served the same day that the order is entered. There are cases where you are served the day before the hearing. And there's cases where you haven't even been served and they've had to continue out the hearing to a new date. So it's important to look at these dates that are in anything that says notice of hearing to make sure you aren't missing important deadlines. Right, because if you miss your deadline to file an answer, it could have major implications for your ability to defend yourself in the lawsuit. And so I would also say, you know, once you get these papers from the sheriff, that you should reach out to a lawyer and get some advice, even if it's just a consultation. Um, you, you need to talk to a lawyer to figure out what it is that you need to do in response to the lawsuit that you've received. Meredith, at what point in the process do you think a person should consider hiring a lawyer? Generally, I think it's important sooner the better. Um, you're going to want to get in there. You're going to want to talk to the attorney, determine what what is in your case that needs to be addressed. If it's just child support and custody or if it's everything that needs to be addressed. And there's certain deadlines that are going to come with everything. Um, you know, you have 30 days to respond to a complaint. Very rarely are you served on day one and then immediately go out and hire an attorney. So it's important to start the process early, meet with an attorney, figure out who's going to work with you and, and be able to help you in this process. And then once you've hired an attorney, they have the ability to ask the court for an extension of time to give you a little bit more time to work with them to answer the complaint properly. Um, they might be able, if there's a hearing, as we talked about before with the domestic violence, if you have a return hearing the very next day, that attorney can go and they can ask the court to, to continue the hearing so that you have time to adequately prepare for the hearing. Right. The complaint usually has numbered paragraphs that are going to contain the plaintiff's allegations about whatever the claims are. And as the defendant, you will have the right to file a document called an answer. And in that answer, you will be admitting or denying the allegations in each of those numbered complaints. You will also have the opportunity to file any counterclaims that you may have against the plaintiff. For example, 
if the plaintiff sued you for equitable distribution, alimony, child custody, and child support, you may also have claims for equitable distribution, child custody, and child support against the plaintiff. And you will want to make sure that you have spoken to a lawyer about your ability to file those counterclaims so that you don't lose your right to bring them. Um, since this episode is called The Divorce Process, um, I feel like we should talk to you a little bit about the actual divorce. So, Meredith, what does a person need to do to be eligible to file for divorce in North Carolina? In North Carolina, you are required to be lived separate apart for a year and a day. So, for example, if you are separated on July 4th, 2019, you would not be eligible to file for divorce until July 5th, 2020. So it's a year and a day. Um, once that is done, either party is eligible to file for divorce. We have no-fault divorce here in North Carolina, so you don't have to have anything specifically pending in order to be able to file for divorce. Um, a lot of people are, they're not sure exactly what it means to be separated. Um, in order to qualify for separation here, you don't have to have a piece of paper that's taken to the courthouse and filed or anything like that. You literally just need to be living under a separate roof from the other side. Um, you cannot live in the same house in different bedrooms. That doesn't count. Um, you actually need to be under different roofs, living separate and apart. And it has to be the intent of at least one of you that that separation be permanent. And the other requirement to be eligible to be divorced in North Carolina is that one of you needs to have been a resident of the state for at least six months immediately preceding the filing of the action. Um, it doesn't have to be you. It can be the other party. But one of you has to have lived here for six months. And if you meet all of those requirements, then you can file a complaint for divorce. It's really important to remember that any claims that you have for equitable distribution or alimony must be at least pending with the court at the time your divorce judgment is entered or you will lose your right to bring those claims. As Jamie discussed with the divorce process, she, you can file your counterclaims. One counterclaim may be the resumption of your maiden name. If you are someone who, when you're getting a divorce, you no longer want to keep the same name of your ex-spouse, um, you, when you file your counterclaim or when you actually file your complaint, if you're the plaintiff, you can ask the court for resumption of your maiden name. And this is a much easier process than if you wait and the divorce goes through and you decide a couple years later that you want to resume your maiden name. You have to go through the same proce process every other person goes through if they want to change their name. Whereas in the divorce process, if you make it a part of the divorce complaint or a part of the counterclaim, it's much easier. You simply ask the court and then include it in the divorce judgment. You ask the court to resume your maiden name and the court can order that your maiden name is resumed. And then once you have that, you, you can take a certified copy of your divorce judgment down to the Social Security office and you can get your name changed. Given the importance of making sure that you comply with the court's deadlines and that you are following the proper procedure and protecting yourself in this process, do you have any recommendations for how a person can find the right lawyer to help them? I, I get this question a lot, and I would say people find attorneys by asking recommendations from their family, friends, coworkers. 
Um, word of mouth, because it also will assure you that they've had good experiences with that attorney in the past, um, and that helps reassure you. I would also suggest that you do some research on your own. Look up the various attorneys that they recommended. See who might be a good fit for you. And then have a consult with them. Go in, meet them, talk to them, shake their hand, figure out if it's somebody that is going to fit with you personally. And then I would also have that tough conversation with them about finances. You know, how much is this process likely to cost? Is it something that you are going to be able to afford? Or is it something that if it's a long, drawn-out process, it might be over, you might get in over your head? Because it's important to find an attorney that is not only going to fit with you personally, but is going to be able to fit with you financially. You don't want to get deep into the process and suddenly not be able to pay your attorney's fees and be stuck out there representing yourself. You want to be able to be in a position where you're comfortable not only with your attorney, but you're comfortable with what you are spending to get what you need out of this process. What I normally say to folks is you need to trust your lawyer like you trust your doctor. And you need to be comfortable with whoever your lawyer is having difficult conversations with them. You need to feel like your lawyer hears you. They may not always agree with you because that's not the lawyer's job to always agree with their client. Their job is to help inform them about the law and to help the client make educated and informed decisions about his or her case. But you should at least feel like your lawyer hears your concerns and addresses them. You may also want to ask your uh, lawyer what their communication policy is. You know, when are they going to return emails? Are they going to do it within 24 hours, two days? Do they have a policy? You just want to make sure that there is an open line of communication and you feel like you are being heard and you trust the advice that you're being given. Yes, and I would I would also take note that when you do communicate with your attorney, it is going they do charge for their time. And so you want to be conscious of how often and how much you are contacting your attorney. For example, you don't want to send six emails when one email would suffice. So just be conscious of that when you're going into this process also. So just to recap before we finish today's episode, there are two ways that you can resolve the issues arising from a separation. The first way is a separation agreement, which is just a contract between the two parties. It's signed and notarized. If you're not able to reach a separation agreement, the second way these issues can be resolved is by filing a lawsuit and potentially going to court. Bear in mind, though, that just because that lawsuit gets filed does not necessarily mean you're going to end up in a courtroom. I would say that most family law cases settle at some point in the process. It's just a matter of when. Meredith, thank you for joining me today. If any of our listeners would like to contact you, what is the best way for them to reach you? They can contact me at 919-832-8488 or email me at m cross at divorceistough.com. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year and a Day. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorceistough.com. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only 
should not be used as legal advice and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions before you take any action, you should consult with the lawyer who is licensed in your state. Thank you.